This morning we return to uh, the letter of Galatians. We are in chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 11 to 14 this morning. Again, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And you'll remember that uh, a couple of weeks ago when last we looked at Galatians, we, we looked at verses 1 to 10. And in that passage, we saw this description that Paul was giving, this autobiographical account that he began back in chapter 1. This description of a trip to Jerusalem and of the way in which he took Titus, a Gentile, and Titus was not forced to be circumcised. He's building this argument, this case, for why circumcision is not necessary for Gentile Christians. And so we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, and then we come to this passage this morning, and Paul is still continuing to build this case. It's of vital, important, vital importance to the early church. Let us read this passage of God's Word together. Galatians 2, chapter 2, Galatians 2, verses 11 to 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by, astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your providence you have brought us to this point in your word. And we thank you for these four verses. This what must have been a very difficult time for Paul and for Peter, this account of their conflict. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would teach us from your wisdom many things. But especially, O oh Lord, teach us the importance of walking in step with the truth of the gospel. And of the importance, Lord, of correcting one another in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning's sermon with a couple of questions, or maybe just, just one at first here. How often do you, in order to avoid conflict, how often have you ended up doing something that you really did not want to do? Now, I know that in this group this morning, there are some of you who are conflict avoiders, and you go to great lengths. You have great skills at avoiding conflict. There are others of you who that's not the case. Some of you really thrive on conflict. I've had many friends over the years who love conflict. They see it as the, the, the method by which you gain greater sanctification. <laughs> but how many of you have tried to avoid conflict just in order to smooth things over, to keep feathers from being ruffled, to, to keep things just going smoothly? Now, you've you got to admit, you often find the, yourself in these situations when you're dealing with family. We'd rather not have a problem, so you just go along with things. This often happens for those of you who are in school. You go along with your friends in school because you don't want to create waves. You don't want to be 
contentious. And it can even happen in the church. And most of the time, these situations are trivial. Sometimes it's just a matter of you going to see a movie that you'd rather not see, but because your friend really wants to see it, you don't want to cause a problem. You want to avoid conflict. But there are those occasions where it's of a more serious nature. There are those occasions where there are great things at stake. And your desire to avoid conflict, to avoid taking a stand, ends up in you being, being somewhere, doing something that you should not be doing. And many of you know what I'm talking about here. You may end up at a party where things are happening that you have no business witnessing or taking part in. You may be a part of a business deal that you know is unethical, but because of your unwillingness to cause problems, you go along with it. Well, in the case of our passage this morning, Peter's avoidance of conflict resulted in him going along with the Judaizers who insisted that he not eat with Gentiles. You see, Peter gave approval through his actions to their notion, to the Judaizers' notion, that Gentiles could only be saved by circumcision plus faith in Jesus Christ. They had to observe the ceremonial law plus believing in Jesus in order to be saved. And I would ask you to think on this as we go through this passage this morning. Think about this, that while it can never be done with full consistency, you, like the Apostle Peter, are called to walk in accordance with the truth of the gospel. While you can never do this with full consistency, while you will never be able to live in perfect accord with the principles that you hold most dear because of your sinful nature, you are called by God and by his word, just like Peter, to walk according to the truth of the gospel. So look at this. Let's look at this in two parts. And this is not necessarily following. I'm not dividing up the passage per se. But I want to look at this from two different angles. First, we'll look at a stumbling stone. And then we will look at a rock, the rock, of offense. So first, let's look at the stumbling stone. Now, these four verses mark the end of Paul's autobiographical account, which he began back in chapter 1, verse 11. He started it back then. He's bringing it to a close. Verse 14 will mark the end of it. So for some time, we've been looking at this autobiography that Paul's been giving. And in these verses, Paul recounts what is possibly the most astonishing incident in this whole section. Peter, one of the pillars, he's just described him in the previous section that we read two weeks ago, one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem and throughout the, the early church, had acted hypocritically. And Paul had to publicly rebuke him. This must have been a very difficult, intense time. You see, Paul, in this letter, he refers to Peter as Cephas, or probably more appropriately pronounced Kephas, which is the name Paul most commonly uses in his letters. Paul uses it more than any other. Well, Cephas is the Aramaic name Jesus gave to Simon in the very beginning of his public ministry in John chapter 1, verse 42. And it and the Greek name Peter both mean rock, as you all well know. Well, Peter, Cephas, had come to Antioch for a visit. And probably after meeting in Jerusalem, after that meeting in Jerusalem, which is described in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we looked at two weeks ago. And Peter, at first, was very willing 
to sit down and eat with the Gentiles. He was very willing to have fellowship with them. He joined in with them at the table. It was very much a part of their lives. And the verb implies that he ate regularly with them. You see, he had, after all, had that vision of the, of the white sheet coming down from heaven and all of the different kinds of food that were both clean and unclean spread across it. And what did God say to him? Take and eat. And Peter resisted at first. And he said, I have never touched an unclean thing. And God said, take, kill, and eat. He had been instructed by the Lord not to consider unclean what God had declared to be clean. And this applied to food, but it applied to the Gentiles as well. And Peter did not miss that meaning. And especially when he traveled to visit with Cornelius. You read about that in chapter 10 of Acts. So Acts 10 marked a major shift for Peter and for Jewish Christians. Judaism simply did not allow the eating of meals with Gentiles who were uncircumcised. And it was the Pharisees and their interpretation of the law who had determined that because uncircumcised Gentiles were unclean, that Jews could not sit down with them at a table. But you see, Peter here is exercising his freedom, exercising the freedom in Christ at Antioch by sitting down with them, having a meal with them, eating ham and bacon and all those good things that we enjoy nowadays. But something changed. Something happened. And you read about it. You see it in, in verse 12 there. Something changed when the people from James showed up. Paul says that when they came, Peter withdrew. And he refused to eat with the Gentiles. He didn't want to have anything to do with them. Now, as we've said before, and I'll say it again, it's always good to, to reiterate things. We're working on the assumption that this, uh, the events in Antioch right here that Paul's describing took place before the Jerusalem Council that we find in Acts 15. And the assumption is based on the fact that Paul makes no mention of the Jerusalem Council in this letter. And it would have been a perfect opportunity to get that information out there, to get the decision of the elders at Jerusalem out there. And so it may very well be that James had gotten wind of what Peter was doing, that James had gotten wind that Peter was eating with the Gentiles, that he was eating food he shouldn't be eating, that he was having a meal with uncircumcised people. And they had sent men to, to Antioch to straighten him out. But if this was the case, if this was the case, then it was at the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15 that James's thinking was changed. Because you see, there's a marked difference. James agrees with what is said at the Jerusalem Council. But at the time described in our passage in Galatians, James's men wanted Peter to follow them and to pull back from the Gentiles, and that's exactly what Peter did. But what is going on here? What is going on here? Is it really uh, only that Paul thinks the Gentiles have been slighted because they don't really uh, have a right to sit at the table with the Jews? Is that what it is? Is Paul just angry because they've offended the Gentiles because they won't sit down at a meal with them? Well, it must be said that it was certainly wrong of Peter to eat with the Gentiles one day and then the next day refuse to eat with the Gentiles. It was certainly wrong for him to do this. You see, fellowship at the dinner table is no small matter. Even today, it's no small matter. Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 5.11 that, that believers are not even to eat with an unrepentant brother who's guilty of sexual immorality. They're not to share a meal with him. And we carry out this injunction today in the church. 
If someone has been excommunicated from the church, we don't share a meal with them. It's a very difficult thing to do, isn't it? But it's because of the intimacy of sharing a meal. It's more than just having food together. The implications are very, very strong. That there's a close relationship there. It builds relationships. That is why there's such an emphasis in this church on getting together for meals, on having fellowship meals, on having people over at your house. Why? Because meals build up the body of Christ. They're crucial for the building of the body of Christ. And contained within this idea of Peter withdrawing was not only that they, he wasn't sitting at them at, the, at the, the meal table, but he was no longer sitting at them to observe the Lord's Supper with his brothers. So it was important sharing a meal, but, but however important it was, there was something else going on. Paul's anger was based on something even more fundamental than sitting, to, sitting down together for a meal. You see, he calls Peter's actions hypocritical. Peter, the rock, had stumbled. He was on his way to a great fall. Peter was being insincere. He was being two-faced. The word for hypocrisy, hypocritical, comes from the Greek stage uh, drama, Greek theater. And it talks about an actor who wears different masks. And Peter was wearing two different masks. One day he was wearing the mask of fellowship with Gentiles. The next day he was wearing the mask of shunning the Gentiles. He was being inconsistent. He acted one, day, one way one day and changed completely when those men from Judea showed up. Well, the real problem with what Peter had done, the issue that Paul was so exercised over, was the theological principle that lay behind what Peter was doing. By what Peter did, Peter was saying that these Gentile brothers who had been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ were not brothers. He was saying by his actions that they were not true believers. He was saying that they had not been justified in Christ Jesus because they weren't circumcised. He was saying that they were unclean. By his actions, Peter was saying that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. And Peter was giving approval by doing this, Peter was giving approval to a works-based religion. He was making Christianity like every other religion in the world. And this was not to be. And so Paul comes down hard. But you see that it was not only Peter that was doing this, was it? We, look, we see in verse 13, Paul says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray. Even Barnabas. One of the closest people to Paul, one of the first brothers that Paul met, the, the brother who brought him into Jerusalem, introduced him to the apostles at Jerusalem, who traveled with him on his missionary journeys, who helped Paul set up the church in Galatia. Barnabas had been led astray. How deeply disappointing this must have been to Paul. Well, Paul in verse 14 describes Peter's and the others' conduct, conduct as not in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter was not walking according to the principles of his faith. He was out of accord with the gospel, the gospel that Jesus Christ himself had taught him in person. How could Peter forget this? Well, Peter is in so many ways 
the most fully depicted apostle in, in the New Testament. And I hope it is very possible for you to identify with him, to see that this great leader of the church is capable of sin. And also to see the need for correction. But Paul uses this phrase, not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, a part of military etiquette, I don't know if this had any, uh, if he had a military thought in his mind as he was writing this, but a part of military, military etiquette today is that when a, a junior member of the military walks with a senior member of the military, he's expected, he's commanded to walk to the left, abreast or in line with the senior member, and in step with him. The, the junior member of the military is expected to match the walk of the senior member. And if he doesn't, if he doesn't conform, if the inferior does not conform to the superior, then he is guilty of insubordination. It's, a, it's, an, it's, it's an insult to the rank of that senior member of the military. Well, Peter's and Barnabas's and all the other Jews who, who withdrew from the Gentiles displayed insubordination. They were insubordinate to God's word. Peter was being insubordinate, directly insubordinate to what God had taught him with that white sheet descending from the heavens. And what's more, their actions were saying that the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not enough. They were saying by their actions that the Gentile brothers needed to do more in order to be saved. So obviously, Paul is very angry. And Paul uses a weapon that should rarely be deployed in the church, but sometimes it is necessary. He publicly calls Peter out. To his face and in front of the rest of the church, he rebukes Peter. He calls him a hypocrite. Now, why did Paul use such harsh measures? You may be asking yourself here, aren't Christians to follow the instructions that Jesus gave in Matthew 18 in dealing with brothers who sin against us? Why did Paul come down so hard on Peter in front of people? And perhaps you're thinking that because that's the last thing you would ever want to have happen to you. Well, we are commanded to work with our brothers and sisters in a private way. Matthew 18 applies. We are to work with one another. And if at all possible, to make agreements, to make uh, amends for our sins in private. But Peter's sin was public. Peter had done this in front of the whole church. And what's more, Peter was dragging other people down with him. A pillar of the church. Peter was stumbling. Peter was calling others, causing others to stumble. He was in danger of being guilty and in fact, Paul says that he stood condemned. And if he was allowed to go on with this, if he was allowed to go on, would Jesus' injunction that a millstone be tied around the neck of the person who caused a little one to stumble not have applied to Peter? Well, believe it or not, if you can read this, believe it or not, what Paul did was an act of great love. It was one of the most loving things that he could have done because it arrested Peter's descent. It stopped him from falling over the edge. And so it was necessary. Peter's, Paul's argument to Peter in verse 14 is, is this. If you, though a Jew, 
live like a Gentile, which is what Peter had been doing prior to those men from James coming. If you live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? You see, these brothers, these Gentile brothers, had watched Peter. They'd fellowshiped with him. How could they not have been deeply hurt by his withdrawal? They knew what was going on here. And they understood that they were basically being declared to be pagans. Peter was completely right to begin with. He knew that he was right. He knew what was right. He knew what should be done. And he should have remained obedient to the truth of the gospel. He should not have changed because of the pressure from James's men. But he gave in. He avoided conflict. And his conduct was unbecoming of, a, of an apostle of Jesus Christ. But his conduct was unbecoming of the, of the meagerest, most basic Christian. None of us are called to do what Peter did. You see, your obedience to the truth of the gospel is important too. Your actions have the capability of confirming your profession of faith or marking you out for one to be condemned. And people watch you. People watch what you do. And by your actions, the gospel is either proclaimed or it is denied. Your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ is established or it is destroyed by the things that you do. You are called to be obedient to all of Christ's commands. And when you fail to do so, you are being inconsistent with your profession. But thankfully, in God's wisdom, through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has atoned even for your sins of disobedience when it comes to walking consistently with your profession. Well, we've looked at this stumbling stone. Let's look at the rock of offense for a moment. Things could have ended badly here. There is no doubt. Things had, could have gone south. They could have tanked. It was about to get ugly. The two powerhouses of the early church had gone toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and the outcome had the potential to destroy the church. You've seen this in modern days, how churches are ripped completely asunder by disagreements between two strong personalities. And Paul doesn't give us the outcome in Galatians. He doesn't let us know how this all was resolved. But if this confrontation, which is described in Galatians chapter 2, if it happened before the Jerusalem council, then not only was James's mind changed, but Peter's as well. If you remember in Acts chapter 15, verses 7 to 11, Peter speaks against, strongly against, requiring Gentiles to be circumcised. He says this, I'm going to read this passage to you. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up to them and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. That is the truth 
of the gospel. It is the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ which saves you. Nothing that you do. You cannot save yourselves. You can't do it by conformity to the ceremonial laws like the Pharisees. These Christian Pharisees were trying to get the Gentiles to do. But you see, it was this very notion, this very notion that was so offensive to the Judaizers. And there were many who could never get beyond it. That's why you see this fundamental rift between the Jews in the, in the first, uh, first century and the Christians. But thankfully, Peter and James did get over it. They get, did get beyond it. They, they moved on. You see, the great and grand truth of the gospel is Jesus Christ himself. He's a fact of history. He is the fact of history. And he, by his very nature, is offensive to sinful men and women. He's offensive to you if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? The fact that the eternal Son of God took up humanity and came to earth is rejected because it implies that you need something. It implies that you can't do it yourselves. It implies that there is something wrong with you. And this is so offensive to people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's offensive because we want to feel like we can stand on our own two legs. We want to feel like we can save ourselves. We can do it all ourselves. Why on earth would I need someone to save me? I can do it myself. I'm not in need of saving. That's the thing now. Well, the fact of Jesus implies that you cannot make it yourselves. His coming to earth implies that you are in need of something that you are somehow inadequate. The fact of Jesus implies that you are filthy with sin and you cannot get yourself clean. And the fact of Jesus did not sit well with the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They thought they were right with God, but the presence of Jesus told them that they were not right. The very presence of him. They were his staunchest opponents, but you never see Jesus backing down from them. Most of the time that the word hypocrite is used in the New Testament, it is used of Jesus, by Jesus, when he is speaking of the Pharisees. Jesus uses his strongest words against them. He says in Matthew 23, verses 25 to 26, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. You see, for the Pharisee, it was most important that they gave the appearance of following the law of God. Their lives are all about projecting an image of conformity. But Jesus attacked them because their hearts were not in it. They had no interest in really carrying out the law of God. They did not love God. They didn't love God. They weren't desiring to be pleasing to God. They were adhering to the law because they thought it could save them. Jesus and the cross teach that your efforts are not and will never be enough to make you acceptable to God. You can never do enough to make yourself pleasing to God. Not by yourself. And this is what is so offensive about Jesus and his death on the cross. The cross teaches that there's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with me. And the Bible tells you that the only way to fix what is wrong with the human race was for God to send his only son to die in your place, to wash you, 
with his blood to cleanse you so that you might be declared righteous in the sight of God. And all who repent and believe in Jesus Christ have the promise that they are made right with God. If you believe, if you repent, you are made right with God. You are in right standing with him. Well, I began with a question. Let me end with a question. What if Paul had not confronted Peter? What if he hadn't? What if he decided that he just didn't want to deal with it? Just let it slide this one time. You see, his public rebuke might seem cruel to you, but if he had done nothing, if he'd done nothing, he'd just stood there and let it go and allowed Peter to continue in this era, what would have happened? You see, it would have been much more cruel to allow Peter to continue in his error. And it would have been much more cruel to the, peop- to the people that Peter was leading astray if Paul had said and done nothing. See, God used Paul not only to correct Peter, but also to keep the early church from being derailed. God was preserving his church, and it, it took extreme measures to do it. And that is why you should so very rarely see this kind of discipline used in the church, a public rebuke. It should be rare. But sometimes it is necessary to protect the church and to preserve and restore the individual who's going astray. Well, there will be times in your life when you will both need to be corrected by your brothers and sisters in Christ, and there will be times where you will need to correct other people. There will inevitably be times when you will play the Pharisee, when you will act in external conformity to what God has commanded, but your heart is just not in it. And you need your brothers and sisters in Christ to wake you up to the fact that you're walking astray. And it won't necessarily be in the same manner that Paul corrected Peter. Most likely, and hopefully, it will be in a private manner and gently done. But no matter what form correction takes, if you are teetering on the edge and a brother or sister in Christ corrects you, They are pulling you back from the edge. And you should rejoice. You should rejoice. By nature, you do not like to be corrected. You do not like to be rebuked. You do not like to be told that you're doing something wrong. You especially don't like the idea of a public rebuke. But if it brings about humble repentance, then it is worth it. It is worth it. And we need always to be ready to gently correct each other when we're not walking according to the truth of the gospel. But before you jump out there and start becoming God's holy policeman, take a moment. Look at yourself. Get your own house in order. Ask somebody who you trust. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a close friend. Ask someone whom you trust to help you discover at least one way in which you are taking the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and perverting it, distorting it, using it for your own advantage, using it against other believers. Ask for other people to help you. And when they point some things out to you, when they show you ways that you really need to change, don't get offended. Thank them. Humbly accept their words. Prayerfully repent. And rejoice that the Lord Jesus has used your brother or your sister to set you back on the path, to keep your feet 
in step with the Lord. And remember that when you do change, it is nothing that you have done, but it is what Christ Jesus has done in and through you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray, O Lord, that we would stand corrected by your word and by our brothers and sisters in Christ and that we would have the humility to accept it and to repent. Conform us more and more to the likeness of your Son, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.